You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Picture for a moment, you hear a sound, you hear my voice, you hear musical note, and along with hearing that, you see something. You hear a musical note of an A and you see the color red or something like that, or you see a color and you hear a sound. That's how Vasily Kandinsky experienced the world. At an early age, he talked about how when he was mixing colors of paint, he could hear the paint hissing because he experienced a condition known as synesthesia, which is the joining of different senses. Yeah, there's a lot of different variations. The one I'm most familiar is, of course, connecting um, music with color. Yeah. And I know that we actually have a couple students at Highlands that that do have synesthesia and are able to, you know, when they listen to um, music, they see colors. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood, art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, the podcast where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today is music teacher extraordinaire, singer, pianist, multi-instrumentalist, Jen Marshall. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I love that I got you here for, um, for this one because there's a very strong visual and musical art connection with Vasily Kandinsky. Um, as we said, Kandinsky experienced synesthesia and his work is largely informed by his connections between music and the visual arts. Um, yes. a, lot of, a lot of times he talked about it in those art terms. He labeled things as, comp, as compositions and as, as improvisations. Yep. Um, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that later. But first, let's start with the background. He was, he was a Russian artist born in Moscow, 1866. His family was relatively well off. Like his father was a tea merchant and and his one of his great grandmothers was like a Mongolian princess, uh, and so that that sort of 
relatively comfortable background for for his family enabled him to study a range of topics. You know, uh, education was not free and universal in, in all societies for all of yeah, time. Yeah, I believe um, he studied law and economics, actually, to start with. Yes, he did start off studying, like, the real subjects, law and economics, the things that would, would lead to a very prosperous and stable career. Yes. And uh, he didn't just study those. He actually was uh, teaching those things. He was he was um, he excelled in those fields. And in in a turn that I can 100 percent relate to, he turned away from that promising career to, to pursue arts. Yeah, um, he you know, in, in 1889, he went on a research trip to um, the Vologda region. Uh, it's like north of Moscow. Okay. And he said he was like really influenced by just the the shimmering colors of the buildings. He said it felt like walking into a painting. Wow. And like like he, he just loved that experience. And so a few years later in 1896, he's age 30. He walks away from his career teaching law and economics and decides to pursue art. And apparently he wasn't like a knockout artist right from the start because he wasn't initially granted admission to the Munich Academy when he applied. So he moved to to Germany, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in 1896, he saw an exhibition of Monet paintings. And this was really influential. Monet, of course, being the the pioneer of the Impressionistic movement. Um, The Impressionist movement was actually named after a Claude Monet painting, um, Impression Sunrise. But... Kandinsky went to this this impressionist exhibition and it sounds like he kind of hated it. At first he looked at it and you know with the impressionists all those little dabs of colors he was frustrated and incredulous that a painter would paint so sort of indistinctly like he said he was looking at this hay- haystack painting and could not find the object in it could not tell what it was. Mm-hmm. And after a while, he kind of came to the realization that that frustration also captivated him. Like he he was lingering on that work of art. It, it's that sort of thing of you know, as teachers, you know, the cognitive dissonance how you right. how you sort of lay something out there and and make it sort of problematic, and and as we puzzle over it we tend to sort of come to a resolution and understanding that's much deeper and greater. And I think that's the experience that, that Kandinsky had. Uh-huh. Like he looked at that work and I, I myself can, I, I've come to the point where I realize that the instant I feel myself like hating a work of art or a style or an artist, it is like the surest sign that two years later, it's going to be my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> that's <You know>? interesting. <laughs> Because like, because because growing up, I loathed abstract art. I I thought it was pretentious and ridiculous, and I I, I still stand by those criticisms. But I love it for pretty much the same reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Kandinsky, you know, he he came to appreciate the the qualities of Monet and other impressionist painters, and he actually embraced abstraction, uh, pushed it even further than Monet did and and his contemporaries. Uh, some people actually, a minor controversy in sort of like art historical nerd backgrounds, you know, some people credit Kandinsky with creating the whole like genre and category of abstract artwork. But um, 
I would say at best he sort of popularized it because, you know, Hilmoff Clint was doing similar things years before mm-hmm. and like the entire rest of the world has been making abstract art in other forms for a long time. But Kandinsky is credited with sort of popularizing it in in Western civilization because he was not just an artist. He also became known as an art theorist. Mm-hmm. And he wrote about art theory and aesthetics. Um, an essay he wrote on the spirit of art in 1910 was really widely circulated and influential. And he was talking about how like all art forms and styles, they're, they're equal. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have this in, in music, but like in, in, the visual arts, there was this idea of like high and low art, you know, certain things were, were, you know, more respected and other things less. So like I mentioned, Hilma of Clint was doing abstract paintings long before in her society and in her time, women were sort of like relegated to the lesser categories or lesser genres of art. Mm-hmm. Like, leave the real stuff to the boys kind of thing. I, I can definitely relate it um, to music in a sense that there's all these rules. And so prior to kind of this abstract 20th century, we'll call it, um, art that was being created, there was tons of rules in music theory that had to be followed. And... Um, you know, you had to, you couldn't have parallel fifths or parallel octaves and you couldn't have certain intervals because those were considered evil um, and all these different, different things. And then there came a time where people started breaking these rules and realizing that, hey, I kind of like this and this, this sounds pretty good to me. Some of it totally out there and, and um, yeah. I don't know, that uh, you know, it's, it's, some people love it, it's some people hate phase, it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> um, but I mean, and, and they went really abstract, like following a fish, um, you know, playing your flute and follow where the fish swims. And that's the song, you know, so very abstract to other things where they're just breaking little rules that aren't that big of a deal. Um, but there de- definitely is that that tie there um, where, you know, there's the start in the 20th century of these breaking the rules and um, creating something totally different, but something that can certainly be appreciated. Yeah, and 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 it he was definitely breaking the rules compositionally um, and in his approach in a lot of in a lot of regards, but also uh, sort of tearing down the structure and the hierarchy. You know, like it. If my my sort of understanding on Kandinsky is he's the type of guy who would have looked at like Green Day and Wagner and said <laughs> they're on the same level, just doing it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's the kind of guy who wouldn't have looked down on someone for doing a one four five progression because it it just sounds nice. Right, right. Um, as long as it resonates and and moves people, I think that that was his core um, sort of goal. Yep, was about like moving people, and so he talked about how like all styles of art are equal, but he also talked about how color could be something sort of transcending traditional art boundaries of like just describing the form or, you know, what something looked like. He was talking about color and how it resonates um, and how it it moves people. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. He talked about, as I said, art and music, that connection, the synesthesia, as we discussed. Uh, He said, color is the keyboard. The eyes are the hammers. The soul is the piano with many strings. The artist is the hand which plays, touching one key or another to cause vibrations in the soul. I love that. So it, it is a beautiful way of of relating, you know, the ultimate goal of visual and auditory art forms Mm -hmm. is to move people, at least in his view. Yeah. And I I think too, um, the, as far as the visual and auditory art forms, um, around when, um, Kadinsky was popular is also like when opera starts becoming popular, you know, Wagner's opera, he's really the one who put those arts together to create something new. So not only are you listening to music, but you're watching the theatric part of music and um, the creations. And they had been a lot around for a long time, but, um, you know, in the romantic area, kind of really expressing feelings and then showing this theatric side of it um, and people having an appreciation for it. Yeah. And, you know, historically, I think it's always good to give that sort of context of knowing like when this was happening. So he was born in 1866. And that's about a time when I see a major shift happening in the way people think about art, because the middle of the 19th century is kind of when photography came about, when Mm. Daguerre was giving people the photographic process. And that's when visual artists in Europe, at least, started to shift away from from like being accurate in their representation because I always think of it as imagine you spend your whole life learning how to paint and draw and then there's this box that can do it more accurately than you can <laughs> yeah. in a matter of like minutes. Right. Um, and so you start to think about like, well, if that technology is my competition, what can I do that 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 the camera can't? Right. And at that time, color was something that the camera was not capturing. Mm-hmm. But but then it also just was a, a limitation of the camera that, you know, cameras don't have imagination and they can't express feelings. And so so that was something that artists started to shift more towards first in like the impressionist sense, exploring color and how we perceive color. And then the post impressionists start to get a little bit more of like, how does the color influence the mood? And then, you know, with Kandinsky, that's sort of like opening the floodgates to this like pure abstraction and almost like non-objective art where it's just about colors, shapes, patterns, designs, how they resonate. Yep. Um, 
And, you know, we see similar outpourings of those ideas with like Jackson Pollock and his action painting and, and things like that. Um, so with, with all of that sort of historical context in mind, and I think now is probably a good time for us to shift towards just looking at one of his works. And for this, this one specifically, we're going to go with the one that you picked, yes. Yellow, Red, Blue from 1925 and I would say this is kind of from the height of Kandinsky's sort of um fame and appeal like this is like this is the period where I feel like he really had come into his own his earlier work felt a little bit more tied towards like what was in front of him and you could see very creative leaps but this is where he just went full-on abstract yeah I really I really enjoy this piece I picked it as my favorite the one thing that sticks out to me um well and I've seen some of Kandinsky's work but not a not a ton of it um but this one because there is very little white on the page and if you look at some of his other um uh pieces of art there's a lot more white and I think that there's some meaning behind the white um I I don't know exactly the meaning I've I've read different um different things about that and maybe that's something you know more about um but I like this because there's not there's barely any white on the page and um and I just think the colors are beautiful in the way he uses the colors um and there's a lot to look at I find myself staring at it and and it's hard to look away because there's so many different things that you notice each time you look at it. Yeah. So like as I'm looking at this, one of the first things that jumps out to me is I see the big, you know, yellow portion on the left hand side. Mm -hmm. Then towards the center, we see we see reds that are overlapping with the blues and forming purple. And, you know, we see a little bit of purple that that comes across at the, the perimeter and the, the yellow is repeated on the sort of at the edges on the right-hand side as well to balance out the composition. Mm -hmm. um, and what I find interesting, like you say, is the more I look at this, the more there is to sort of discover. Um, as I'm looking at as I'm looking at this, the first thing that, that I'm drawn to is the abstracted face or figure that I see in the yellow portion. I see that arc as like the back of a, the head getting near the center of the, the page. Mm -hmm. I see that angled line um, with like, there's a right angle line yep. sort of below it that acts as like a, a nostril. There's yep. the, the red with the black, the concentric circles that form sort of an eye. eye. I see like... I, I see this as like a, an abstracted figure sort of in profile. And then I see these lines that stick out that remind me so much of cartoons from when I was, when I was younger. Like I'm thinking of, um, was it the show Rugrats where oh, they had that, yes. that Cynthia doll that had like the, the, the hair the, that was sticking yeah. out at those odd angles and just in patches. Right. Right. Um, and, and that like that's the connection I see here that just makes me smile. Mm -hmm. But then then when I look to the other side, I see just so much more like rhythm and movement and like just non-objective. I love that black wavy line. Yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, you know, he's got the straight black line and then he's got that one with the waves. Um, and I'd be interested 
to look at more art pieces and see if that's um, common where he has the wavy black and the straight black. I think when he uses black, it's always very purposeful. Um, And it's just interesting how he uses it in different ways in this piece. Yeah. And what, what I see in there is, you know, he's doing this thing, which is kind of hard to do where he's combining geometric and organic shapes. Mm -hmm. We see things that are very like precise, hard edge, straight lines. And then we see these free flowing wavy lines, which creates good contrast. There's a difference between those things, but it's hard to have those different kinds of shapes and still have it feel unified within the composition. Like nothing feels like it's arbitrarily placed or it doesn't feel like it's out of place and stuck on there. Like it it does feel like it all sort of works together in this way that in some ways feels like it shouldn't. There's this sort of tension between them. Um, You know, I, I do really like the that black wavy line because of the sort of rhythm of it, because of the way that it changes the weight of line throughout. Yeah. To me, it you know gives the art piece movement. Um, yeah. I see it as movement. Yeah. And the term movement comes up a lot. I think you and I both use it in, in our respective fields yeah. in the visual arts. When we're talking about movement, it's one of the principles of design and what we're thinking about is how the eye moves across the composition. Um, and, and this is full of what I re- would refer to as leading lines. They're, they're lines that are pathways for my eye to follow around the composition. And I see like that is a strong line for my eye to follow from the top to towards the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of like leaves off coming to a point like a big arrow pointing me to the other side and then there's this arc that balances out on the on the other like the bottom left corner that sort of leads my eye back up and around and sort of then these angles that bring me back like that that red triangle sort of pointing back in towards the center of the composition where we've got all those different shapes coming together there's a very nice pathway for my eye to follow that makes this visually pleasing. It, it's, a, it's a work that like I can linger on and stay on because of the way the lines sort of hint that my eye should follow this pathway around and back. Yeah, I like um, that. I've never really thought about that really when well. looking at a piece of art um, with the pathways and the movement kind of through a different lens for me. Yeah, and that's one of those things that that I find really interesting about abstract work is how do you hold a viewer's attention when you don't have that recognizable subject matter? Because like a recognizable subject matter creates like an instant connection or like an instant feeling for people right. when they think about like that person or that place. Whereas with abstract artwork, you're, you're looking at just um, lines, shapes, colors, patterns. I guess really I'm describing non-objective because abstract is sort of like suggestive of a figure the right. way that, that we talked about, like the abstracted um, figure in there, but I don't know who that is. It's a symbol of anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, the challenge of it is how do you hold someone's attention and the principles of design and that art theory really comes in into play a lot more yeah. in abstract work. And I, I always like that because I'm always sort of that type of person who likes to sort of see how things are made. I always look at things and sort of deconstruct it and think about like, how would I do that? What's, what's the artist doing? 
it's sort of like peeking behind the curtain at a magic show. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, so any anything else you want to say about this piece? Um, well, just one thing. I noticed that the um, the squares that have a bunch of different colors, those to me just remind me of Rubik's Cubes. Interesting. See, I was thinking more like I was thinking more like he was um, Russian, and I think of like chess. Oh, yeah. Immediately when yeah. I think of like the checkered, and especially patterns. with the black and white one there in the middle. Um, and I, I just, I just saw changing the colors as like a variation on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think the Rubik's cube is an interesting connection too. Yeah, I was, I couldn't remember um, what they were called. But it finally came to me. <laughs> That's, I'll have to look it up. I feel yeah. like historically Rubik's Cubes came later. I, I think so. I think that they have nothing to do with the painting, but that's what it makes me think about when I look at it. that's the connection. Yeah, that's what I see. Yeah. Because I, th- like, I also think of like in a totally, in an anachronistic sort of way, I think of like um, those, what was that game, uh, the arcade game where they had the light up floor and it was like you were dancing. Oh, yeah. On there. I know the, exactly. Oh, the Dance Dance, dance Revolution, Revolution one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I just, I just remember like friends of mine doing that and me being embarrassed to see people dancing in public. Yeah. Um, if you can even call it dancing. At the mall, you know, where you go and do, yeah. The other thing I noticed about this piece, um, in the corner in the bottom right, you have what kind of looks like a music staff, although it's four lines, not five. Um, but that's interesting to me. And then next to that, like also kind of reminds me of a sharp sign, but it's got, it's, it's a little different, but, um, I see when I look at that bottom right corner, I see music to me that looks musical. Yeah. And I, I, I see that too. And I, like, he listened to music all the time in his studio and he, he, he talked about art in musical terms and I in some ways almost feel like this is an abstraction of a musical note. Mm -hmm. Like I see the, the big heavy dot towards the bottom as like a dot, like a dotted quarter note or something like that. I see, um, you see that angled line. It's maybe at 45 degrees. It's got the triangles coming out from that. I see that almost as a line off of a quarter note Ah. because I see that big arc, um, almost like it was broken, like, like a quarter note, like a, I see this as a dotted quarter or dotted eighth note. That's like broken apart where I've got like the, the line there, I've got parts of the arc that like, like I talked about before that's continued up there. Mm -hmm. Um, I see, um, I see like the, the wavy line we talked about initially as almost like the, I don't know the term for it, but you know, off of an eighth note, how it like kind of little flag, the, the flag yeah. yeah like i i see that as just like it's coming unraveled and it's like breaking apart uh-huh. and becoming more free and spontaneous and like i see this as like because that was about 1925 that's like jazz time right yeah i mean around then you know so like i see this as just like that improvisation and that burst of energy and life and explosion in there yeah freedom um, freedom and but you know that's just my own sort of idiosyncratic connections. Um, but I, that's what I see in it. I'm going to wrap it up now, I guess, because I think I've rambled enough. I do have one, um, one quote that I found. 
Um, Go for it. That from um, Kadinsky. And it says, lend your ears to music, open your eyes to painting, and stop thinking. I like that. <laughs> Me too. I wish I could stop thinking. <laughs> I know, right? I, I, I wish it was that I, simple. I really wish I could stop <laughs> thinking at, at some point um, because I overanalyze everything. Um, but to wrap this one up, we'll stop thinking about this piece. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? The lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loop. British for the bastard. Yeah, there's the a loop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I, I'm i going to put this one in the lab because I just think there's so much to learn from it and so much I personally want to learn more about. Like, what music was he listening to when he made this? And what are these different symbols and these different shapes? And the, did he purposely put the movement into the piece that we see. Um, so I'm definitely going to go with the lab. I like that. Uh, I definitely feel like there's a lot to learn from Kandinsky. Um, this one, I'm going to say, I, I would put this in the Louvre. Uh, I, generally, I think there's a lot to learn from Kandinsky. The, the nerd in me really doesn't like yellow, red, blue um, as a title for this piece, just because... Yellow, red, blue in the arts we think of as primary colors, mm-hmm. but you know, as an as a as an art theorist, I, I feel like he should have known cyan, magenta, yellow, um, <laughs> slightly different shades for for better primaries. Uh, but but as a work of art, like I think this is gorgeous. I mm-hmm. find this very pleasing to look at. I think there's a lot to appreciate, a lot to understand, a lot to learn from. But I feel like this is a museum piece. This is one everybody should see, should look at. Yes, should should take time to deconstruct and learn from because it's a very intellectual piece. But I also feel like this is one where he balanced it extremely well. Um, the sort of the the art theory, but also just the aesthetics. Yes. It is very pleasing. It is very soothing. I could linger on this for, for quite some time. I've seen this numerous times. It has always been sort of one of the standouts of his body of work, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. It's one I come back to time after time and show students time after time. The composition is so strong with the, the contrasting types of shapes. The, the colors are all in sort of perfect harmony. Yeah, there's just um, so much to look at. It, it's just very, very pleasant to look at mm-hmm. as well as to learn from. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's wonderful talking art and music and the connections between them. I always feel weird saying art and music because music is just another art form, but like the visual arts and musical art forms and seeing, seeing how they, they're intertwined in the same umbrella. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I'm uh, happy to be here. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.